It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak, and this week is for the ladies. We'll be talking about women's roles in two pretty different fields, science and religion, and how women have worked their way in from the margins of both. But before we get started, I have a plea for you. If you like Smarty Pants and the eclectic range of subjects we bring you every month, please rate us on iTunes. A positive review goes a long way to getting the show to more people. Or you can just tell your friends about it. If every single one of our listeners just told one person, we could double our listenership. How else are they going to learn about Eliza Snow, who worked inside the Mormon church to change it? Or the teenage girls who jump-started the Victorian spiritualist movement? Suddenly you have these teenage girls, you know, up on stage at Stuyvesant Hall in front of huge audiences that have maybe never even seen women speak in public on a stage before, let alone a, you know, a 15-year-old. We'll get back to religion later. We're reverse engineering history here and starting with science. It seems like every other week, some public figure or another is putting their foot in their mouth when it comes to gender. Whether it's the Google guy, Larry Summers the state of North Carolina. As a species, we've gotten really hung up on gender differences, and that started well before Judith Butler came along and threw us all for a loop. There are a lot of books out there that really are quite polemical or one-sided when it comes to sex and gender. You know, things like Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. Um, there are countless books like that. And all I wanted to do was understand the truth. What are the facts? What does science actually say about me and other women? That's Angela Saini, a science journalist whose new book, Inferior, explores how science got women wrong and digs into the new research that's changing the old story. As she writes in her book, there's this really pervasive idea that science and scientists are miraculously free of any kind of prejudice. Call it our faith in data or in objectivity. But it's just not true. The programmers writing the code or the scientists running the studies are just as prone to bias as any experts in any field. Literary critics, historians, sociologists, podcast hosts. We bring our biases to our work, all of us, 
And in science, that comes out in how studies are conducted and how their outcomes are interpreted. But bias is also in the makeup of the field itself, stretching all the way back to Darwin and the female scientists snubbed for the Nobel and other prizes. Angela Saini is joining us from London. Thanks for being on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's start there with scientists themselves. How is the institution and the field set up to sideline women? How is prejudice part and parcel of science itself? Well, um, I think we have to remember here that the establishment of science is very old. So um, if we just take from the Enlightenment onwards, scientific institutions, when they were set up, even though the Enlightenment was this wonderful liberal project, it actually wasn't great for women. There were Enlightenment thinkers who did still believe that women were somehow different to men, that they that they had a particular role at home, whereas uh, men should have public lives and, you know, they were the thinkers and the intellectuals. And this bled into the way that science, from its very inception, treated women. So the early scientific academies that were set up in Europe, for instance, um, like the Royal Society in London and others, uh, excluded women as a matter of course. That was just, you know, a part of their makeup that women weren't admitted. Um, and they were very important because these were the forums where scientists would come together, discuss their ideas, and their, those ideas then propagated. So women, right from the beginning, didn't have access. Now, later on into um, the 18th and 19th centuries, you see that um, women didn't have access, still didn't have access to higher education. Often, even at the primary level, they didn't have the same level of education as boys. So, you know, from the very get-go, women really didn't have a way in. If they practiced science, it was usually independently on their own. Uh, they found it very difficult to get their ideas out there unless somebody, unless they had a benefactor or somebody to support them. There, are, I've read recently that there were women then who, if they wanted to be scientists, if they wanted to practice science, would sometimes just marry a scientist because often these scientists were working at home and so they would have labs at home and that would give them the opportunity to do that. So there are a lot of women whose stories have been written out the scientific story because they were helping their husbands or they were helping somebody else and their contributions were ignored. So I think even now when we think about women in science, we have to understand the legacy of all of this. It's a legacy of exclusion. And it's only fairly recently, in fact, up into even the middle of the 20th century. So I studied engineering at Oxford, for instance. Oxford University didn't grant degrees, full degrees to women on an equal basis to men until well into the 20th century. So women are just beginning to catch up. Yeah, and even today we see... You know, we see this discussion about how women are entering STEM fields in universities at higher rates than ever, more women than men graduate with degrees. But how do we actually see that play out in terms of women actually conducting research today? Well, women still face issues in the workplace, and these issues dog them in science just as they do elsewhere. So I was just talking to somebody today who was telling me that um, in India, where she works, there are a lot of women scientists and engineers at the undergraduate level. But once they get married and have children, they drop out. Um, and that's uh, that kind of plagues women everywhere, I think. I have a child myself, and I found it very difficult to balance career and, and childcare. In research, you're expected to do very long hours. 
yeah, it's difficult. It's still difficult for women that workplaces aren't set up with this in mind. They should be. Men and women should be able to contribute equally to the sciences. Um, and, you know, this wonderful influx of women doing science degrees and engineering degrees is actually going to waste if we don't change the way workforces um, work. Right. Not to mention cases of sexual harassment that we've seen in, you know, hallowed institutions like Stanford or other universities. Yeah, of course. All these cases are just coming out now. Um, Although women have suffered in silence for a very, very long time prior to this. It, It feels as though slowly the floodgates are opening. And so women feel able to talk about these things where they weren't able to talk about them before. Um, and we forget science is being male dominated is, of course, a hotbed for these kind of problems for sexual harassment and sexism. Right. And that comes out not just in the workplace, but also in the studies themselves. And it seems like, luckily, at least a lot of these landmark studies about sex difference seem to have been overturned or the bad after effects are sort of being dealt with. What are the kinds of studies that have sort of been debunked, I guess, in the past couple decades? Well, there's still a lot of work to be done, but I think part of the problem stems from the fact that in the in the 19th century, when biology really made enormous strides, um, a lot of these male biologists were, you know, they were Victorians, so they had very Victorian attitudes to women. So if we look at Darwin, for instance, Darwin really did think women were intellectually inferior to men, and he wrote this not just in his private letters, but also in his books, in The Descent of Man, that's what he says. So um, that kind of wave of thinking carried on. Lots of male biologists did work into women's brains being smaller and that somehow being indicative of women not being as smart. Research into hormonal differences between men and women and how that made them different in some way psychologically. And that kind of work is still happening to this day. There are still papers being published saying that men and women have uh, different brains, that there's such a thing as a male and female brain, that women are somehow naturally set up to be homemakers and child rearers, whereas men are naturally set up to have intellectual public lives. Um, So there's still a lot more to be done, but women are challenging it. They challenged it in Darwin's time too, but now they're being listened to because they are also scientists in their own right. So for example, um, work on psychological sex differences, there's been some wonderful research done actually digging down into what the sex differences really are. And increasingly, as we have large groups of people, so so individual difference starts to bleed out a little bit, um, you see that the differences are very small, that actually men and women, on even on things that we associate very heavily with one sex, like spatial awareness or mathematical ability, um, actually there are very tiny differences between men and women and often none at all. Um, and there's another theory at the moment which is just a theory. I mean, the evidence is yet to come, but it's very compelling, this idea that actually when you look at male-female characteristics, we are all a mix of both. So actually our brains are intersex. That's one idea um, from Daphna Joel um, in Tel Aviv. Um, So there are wonderful new theories and hypotheses coming up to explain the differences that we see and also um, explain away the differences that were never there. 
That's so interesting. And it seems that idea of an intersex brain, even though it's just a theory, seems to dovetail really nicely with the ways that our own conceptions culturally of gender and sex are changing. Absolutely. I think one of the reasons that science is improving now when it comes to sex and gender is because society is improving when it comes to sex and gender. We're just so much more aware of issues like intersex and transgender and homosexuality and the fact that Gender just seems a much more fluid thing now. And in fact, even sex is in some way fluid because even though, you know, we think of it, biological sex as two very firm camps, you know, men are XY and women are XX. In fact, there are people that fall between those two and we all have different levels of hormones. So um, it's interesting. There are new waves of thinking about this and those kind of rigid divisions that you saw in the early 20th century are slowly starting to melt away and we're getting a far more nuanced and clever way of thinking about men and women. Mm, Right. And that's being reflected a little bit in study design too, right? There was um, a really interesting article in Marie Claire a couple months ago about this, about how Um, in medicine, at least, women are dying, basically, or getting really inferior health treatment because doctors are diagnosing and treating women like men, based basically on studies that treat men as the default patient. Yeah, I think we need to be careful in this. So there's a chapter in my book um, about this, about medicine. And uh, the fact is, for a very long time, men have been um, the default subject in clinical trials on new drugs. Now, there are some very good reasons for this. One of them is that if you were to give an experimental drug to a woman who is of fertile age, she may be pregnant without realizing it, and that drug may harm her fetus. So that is one of the reasons this has been done. Also, women's hormones levels fluctuate um, across the month. So that, again, complicates the response that you get. So in some ways, it's not completely crazy to tend to test drugs on men because uh, they don't have these hormonal fluctuations and you don't have that risk to babies. But on the other hand, um, there has been campaigns for the last 20, 30 years, especially in the US where you are, um, to kind of redress this balance uh, because of the fear that women may be suffering side effects or adverse effects from drugs because they weren't tested in women. The FDA did recall Um, I think, eight to 10 drugs a while ago, and some of them did have more adverse reactions in women. Although I think I do think we need to be careful here because sometimes the differences are just down to body size. So it may be the case that a small man would also have the same kind of reaction as a woman would. So I don't think this is just always about sex and gender. Sometimes it's just about size, weight, uh, social background, you know, other factors in your health profile. I think when it comes to sex and gender in general, the way science approaches it, we have to be very careful of not rushing to extremes, of treating women as though they're completely different um, or treating women as though they're completely the same. There are differences, but I think what's more important, what's more interesting in a medical context is individual difference. We're all different. For example, my family is from India and South Asians are thought to have you know, a higher propensity to diabetes. Although in my family, there is no history of diabetes. So to assume that I have a higher risk just because I have South Asian ancestry would be wrong in that context. So we have to be really careful um, when we approach gender, not to make the same mistakes that have been made in the past by assuming that women are very different. 
So how are scientists approaching it now? What's the way that people these days are designing studies or designing research in order to account for those individual differences and not gloss over or generalize too much? Well, I don't think really that work is being done very much. There's there's a huge interest in sex difference research at the moment. Studies come out all the time saying that there are differences. A few studies occasionally are published saying that there are none. Um, and this kind of reflects a disproportionate way we think about these things. So there was one researcher I interviewed, Gina Rippon, who's a neuroscientist in Birmingham here in the UK. And um, she said that there are a lot of studies that are done that show that there are no sex differences, but they're not the ones that get published because they look like negative results. Um, so we kind of see the tip of the iceberg, really. The studies that do get published are the ones that do show sex difference, and they're the ones that get all the coverage, and you know they make all the papers, and then we start to that starts to reinforce our existing gender stereotypes and we build we start building a picture of extreme difference when in fact the research doesn't suggest that at all so i think one of the things that needs to happen is that studies that show no sex difference should be published as well and they should get as much play in the media as the studies that do show sex difference. That's number one. Um, number two, yes, like, like I said before, we need to look at individual difference and that requires a big shift, I think, in the way science works because, you know, we tend to group people. We can't help but do that. We group into age or gender or race or lots of different things. But to look at people as individuals, I think, is a much bigger challenge and that still has to be done. I think that's true of science writ large, too. Like negative results studies don't get published a lot anywhere because they're not really sexy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was wondering a little bit about your research process for this book because it's, as you said, it's a centuries-long field. Medical and scientific researchers have been looking into sex differences for decades. How did you go about talking to researchers about this? Who Did you interview a bunch of people? How much literature did you have to look into? It seems really daunting. It was a lot of literature. I did a lot of reading and I spent a very long time working on it. So as a journalist, um, my process is quite simple. I, I usually sit down and have as long interviews with people as I possibly can. I mean, what what I really wanted to do here was approach it as objectively as I could because there are a lot of books out there that really are quite polemical or one-sided when it comes to sex and gender. You know, things like Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. Um, there are countless books like that. And all I wanted to do was understand the truth. What are the facts? What does science actually say about me and other women? Um, and I was prepared for the possibility that maybe it said some things I wouldn't want to hear, you know, as a feminist. Um, and sometimes it did. The facts are sometimes greyer than you might want them to be. The fact is there it's not a picture of complete similarity. There are differences between men and women, even psychologically small differences. But what was more interesting to me was hearing the stories of these amazing women, these feminist scientists who really have changed completely the way we think about women and um, introduced women into their fields as a subject in themselves when for a long time they were utterly ignored and treated as kind of an adjunct to men or something not as important. If you want to read more about some of the stellar women researchers that Angela Saini interviewed and some of the weirder, more sexist theories that their colleagues have proposed, like that women hit menopause because men no longer find them attractive, 
True story. That's a real study. It's all in her book, Inferior. So let's talk about the opposite of science. Superstition. Spirituality. Religion. The story of how women came to shape modern religion isn't actually all that different from how women are shaping science. Sometimes they just had to find a way to work around the rules, like the women who wanted to practice science and so married a scientist. Eliza Snow, who I mentioned at the top of the show, married not one, but two religious founders, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. And sometimes women just did whatever they wanted, like Amy Semple McPherson, who invented the megachurch and religious radio. Or Sojourner Truth, the true patron saint of intersectionality, a buzzword she makes totally and completely understandable. Here to talk about all this and more is Adrian Shirk, author of the new book, And Your Daughters Shall Prophecy, which tells stories from the byways of American women and religion. Thanks for talking to us. Thanks for having me. So what captured your imagination about these women in particular, and what made you want to ground them as the center of this story? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the the project began um, first from an interest in the very messy, um, kind of unstable way in which, um, you know, American Protestantism in particular has formed, like, over the last 250 years. I was really interested in that. I was interested in how inconsistent and discontinuous these traditions are, even though like one of the great rhetorical um, tools of American Protestantism especially is that there's a kind of continuity and purity um, and unbrokenness. And so I became really interested in wanting to kind of explore and represent the messiness of that history and, and pretty quickly found myself encountering all of these different women who were a part of that. And what I found myself looking at when I was looking at women in particular were movements or religions or theologies that were really taking to task, um, even if they didn't consider themselves activists, some of the fundamental forms and ways in which like religion was made and practiced. And so I saw them all kind of as these like very avant-garde figures. This act of kind of remaking the form of making it new felt so fundamental, actually, to just in the larger history of American religion making. They happened to all have these strange lives and circumstances that led them to these to these theologies and to these movements, um, you know, having much to do with the fact that they were women and the things that they had to overcome to even be um, considered by the public was extraordinary to me. The things that they had to do um, to make themselves visible and to make their theologies visible were just <laughs> were spectacular in, on many levels. I mean, it's kind of remarkable, not that every one of them has a rags to riches story, but a lot of them start out at the margins of society and then suddenly push their way to the fore. Like the adolescent girls of the spiritualist movement, for instance, that nobody was listening to, and then suddenly they're on a stage. Totally. I mean, I think that's such an, a, a wonderful example because, um, in fact, one of the best examples because uh, the sort of religion of spiritualism as it unfolded was so free form, it could encompass and take on a lot of new forms the poster children of the spiritualist movement were these three teenage sisters, um, the Fox sisters, who had demonstrated these powers of mediumship in their haunted house in Hydesville, New York. 
And because their community had kind of positioned them as these prophets of spiritualism, what that opened up was like this whole terrain where where teenage girls from a variety of different class backgrounds, um, though we are, of course, talking by and large, especially the you know 1840s, 1850s about white women, but suddenly you have these teenage girls you know, up on stage at Stuyvesant Hall in front of huge audiences that have maybe never even seen women speak in public on a stage before, let alone a, you know, a 15-year-old. And these girls would channel um, the spirit of Abraham Lincoln or, <laughs> in some cases, I don't know, more nefarious figures. And Anne Browdy, the scholar, talks about this. Teenage girls were missionaries. This is a word Browdy uses, the missionaries of spiritualism, this very mode of public spectacle. Um, but it woke people up and it broadened their imaginations, you know, with or without their intent of what kinds of spiritual phenomena were possible and who the deliverers of these spiritual experiences might be. Right. And it also was a really heady time, too, because not much later you had the, you know, the Second Great Awakening. And then you had all of this, this strange mix of like suffragette movements and women's rights movements and abolitionist movements and also this awakening of religious fervor. It's hard to untangle that period in a way. It totally is. It's actually so complicated and so much more nuanced, you know, than can be encompassed by like this phrase as though it's sort of a unified movement. But the Second Great Awakening is this moment where the governing kind of religious ethos is that God is talking to everyone, that everyone can have access to a unique, direct, personal religious experience. You know, this opens up, of course, like all these new pathways for anyone. If God is talking to all of us, then watch out because <laughs> like there's a lot of us and what you have in that 20 to 30 year period you know is this sudden huge proliferation of religious movements and a lot of them are what we call like restorationist movements so movements um, that are claiming to restore the original church and the original church might be like the church as it existed in the first century during Jesus's life or like I think in the case of, you know, the LDS movement, which comes out of this period, you're restoring the whole history of Abrahamic religion, right? So you have all this like religion making coming out of this moment and women, you know, inevitably start to occupy this really central space because the 19th century ethos is that they're very passive and, and pure conduits for the Holy Spirit, for this relationship with God. So what you start to have during this period of time also are camp meetings and tent revivals, like everywhere, like as forms of entertainment in people's communities. It's like what you do on the weekend. You go, and it might be the Church of Nazarene or the Church of Christ or the Free Will Baptists or some group is coming through town with their itinerant preachers and go, go to this tent revival and see if you have a religious experience, see if you have a conversion experience. Um, and so you start to have public displays even of women speaking tongues or tent revivals and camp meetings, but beginning to kind of occupy this space and people are watching that happen. It definitely paved the way for figures like Amy Semple McPherson, for instance, who Hugely. is a really interesting figure and seems to me, along with Eliza Snow, to embody like two different facets of women and religion. Can you talk a little bit about these two influenced or founded their own religious interpretations? Yeah. Um, like you said, you know, Amy Semple McPherson um, 
absolutely is indebted to the Second Great Awakening, although she comes later, right? She comes in the 1920s. Um, but she comes very much so out of this tradition um, that emerges in the Second Great Awakening, which is, again, like we have direct access to God. God is still speaking and God is speaking to me and God is speaking to you. Um, and yet she was like remaking American Pentecostalism. Um, and she was also taking what was a pretty marginal American religious movement in the 1920s and sort of bringing it up to the fore. You know, and this included speaking in tongues and very physical, audible displays of being religiously moved. And she makes use of all of these different media technologies to disseminate her gospel. But again, she's remaking everything as she goes. She's providing new forms of religious experience you know, and she is able to also make a lot of money through this process. I mean, she's able to build a denomination. And so she has all this freedom as it grows, as the movement grows, as the church grows, to keep taking that up a notch, to keep going further, um, no matter how much she is lambasted for various kinds of scandals, you know, including the very famous one in which she disappears. Um, she's kind of inoculated against them because she can keep building and because by that point her following is so big. And then you have Eliza Snow, who is not, you know, a religious leader, doesn't consider herself a religious leader, was not considered a religious leader by any means. And you have all these writings, poems from her, where she's clearly doing what we would call theology through these poems. She's presenting actually ideas that are still considered important or meaningful in LDS theology today, but through these poems, most noteworthy of which were, was the mother in heaven, the idea that there's, a, that there's a heavenly mother. And so she's working in this very orthodox way. She does not consider herself or announce herself to be creating new forms um, or pushing the line in any way. Rather, she's sort of making use of this new theology She's learning it, right, as everyone else is learning it. And she's using the forms of poems and songs to make sense of it. And so in this way, she becomes this religious thinker, this person who shapes LDS religious thought and discourse, but without threatening the pretty strict division of labor between what men and women can do. Uh, you know, women are still in the LDS church today not thought to be capable of being arbiters of, of revelation. And so what she was doing at the very, very beginning of the movement is extremely relevant, I think, still today. I especially liked the moment where you talk about how she's leading some kind of meeting and the the priests are in there and they're supposed to critique what she's said and they're trying to minimize women's role and she steps up and she's like, oh, yes, absolutely. Women should be totally in the service of their husbands in the mold of Miriam, who, of course, is uh, kind of an independent prophetess. Totally. And she goes on to create all of these subversive spaces where she's saying, oh, yes, women should obey their husbands, but you know, don't go to him for everything. Like, you don't want to bother him. So just do stuff on your own. Right. I mean, I think she continuously presents herself as both being, you know, handmaiden to helper to the sort of patriarchs of Zion, right, of, of early Utah in the 1820s. And yet, simultaneous to this, she's starting, like, women's newspapers. She's starting all these early women's relief organizations. She's helping in the effort to have Utah be the second, I think, state for full women's suffrage 
while speaking in the language of both kind of cultural and theological of the LDS patriarchs. Um, and that, that moment when she talks about Miriam is so amazing to me, even if like what I'm imposing this on her, you know, I don't have no idea what her intent was, right? And yet I just read subversion and invention all over her work, all over her poems and all over that moment in that Sevier stake meeting where she said, yes, we must all be helpers to our husbands and to the priesthood, just like Miriam, Miriam the prophetess who independently led the Jews from Egypt across the Red Sea with Moses, singing music with them, leading the songs as they crossed into the desert. She's just this like extremely particular figure for Eliza Snow to have invoked in that moment as a model. And I love that no one you know, in the record of this meeting seems to have caught that. So much of her theological thought, especially about the uh, mother in heaven, made its way into Mormon canon in a similarly gradual, almost imperceptible way. And because of that, she was considered this model um, while actually making these contributions that were really new and subversive. So in all of your, your readings through the history of American women, in the centers of religion, at the margins of religion, even at the margins of the margins, like with Haitian voodoo or women like Sojourner Truth and Black preachers, what do you think women were looking for at those margins? And why do you think this space sort of opened up in America in this moment, sort of at the turn of the 20th century before a little bit too, for them to reach for it? It's a great question. I guess there's like there's a whole new sense during that period, not just in the United States, but in the West, too, of social justice and human rights, where we are kind of understanding those things. And you have these movements, these religious movements and these religious figures who are making sense of those within a religious context. And, you know, again, I think like Sojourner Truth is the most sort of obvious example of this in, in my book. What Sojourner Truth is making sense of is taking these truths, right, that slavery is wrong, that women's subjugation is wrong, and her relationship to the Holy Spirit, and in a way that was sort of unprecedented, right, that, that this idea that, that God and that religion might have something to do with human rights, <laughs> this is sort of a new paradigm of thought um, in the 19th century, and she's... She's one of these early examples of, like, bringing those things together in the same discourse. Um, and so, you know, as far as what they were looking for, well, they were looking for, you know, freedom. Black women were looking for freedom. Women were looking for freedom. And they were looking at everything that was happening in the world that seemed sort of paradoxical or incommensurate. Or they were looking at all this new information. And they were looking at their religious education or how they understood their own personal relationship with God. And they were bringing all of these things together. Um, I feel like I'm not answering your question, but it's like a, it's a really, it's a, uh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe well, I, mean, I guess that means we're still looking. <laughs> I guess we are. I guess, I think we are. I think in some ways we are. And, and and that's, you know, one of the things that I see resonating, you know, not just for me in this moment of this of the book coming out in this particular moment, um, is this gap, I guess, in my own life and in my own narrow experience between like the left and the religious left, the secular left and the religious left, fearing that there's no common ground upon which to think about human rights and ethics. But when I look at a lot of what was fomenting in the 19th century, and especially when I look at it through the person of Sojourner Truth, I see this long tradition, actually, of secular 
and religious progressive alliances, and there being kind of a lost history, a sense that that space doesn't exist. You know, uh, religious discourse has been co-opted so much by fundamentalism in my own lifetime. And so, yeah, I think we are still looking. I think that something that a prophetess like Sojourner Truth offers us now in this moment is a model for how all of those different movements or beliefs can actually be harnessed for a similar goal. There were way too many women to pick for this interview with Adrian. So if you want to learn more, do check out her book, And Your Daughter Shall Prophecy. That's it for Smarty Pants this week. As ever, we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode, which will touch on weird etymologies, Mongolian spots, and other linguistic oddities. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.